Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 4. This time we're going to dismiss our children to Children's Church. So if you have little kids who are pre-K up through third grade, you can meet in the back for Children's Church. And moms and dads, if you have not yet checked those kids in, you can meet them in the back. There's a little uh, check-in system, and so we'll make sure we connect with you and give your kids the right ID and make sure that only you can pick them up. That's very important. We do take that stuff seriously around here, so uh, we do that every week. Well, we are making our way through the book of Nehemiah. If you're brand new, maybe you haven't been here before, this is kind of what we do. We preach through books of the Bible. We walk through this great story of Nehemiah, which we're calling uh, Gospel Rebuild, as Nehemiah and his friends rebuild the city of Jerusalem as they find their plans and purposes on the God who takes broken people and puts us back together again. That's who Jesus is. That's what he came to do. And so my hope and prayer is that you will see Christ as we read Nehemiah chapter 4 together. This is God's word. Now when Sanballat heard that they were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Yes, what are they building? If a fox goes up on it, he will break, their stone, break down their stone wall. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from their sight. For they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall. And all the wall was joined together to half its height. For the people had a mind to work. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward. And that the breaches were beginning to be closed. They were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, They will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us, Ten times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and 
awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side when he built The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. This is the word of the Lord. Let's go to him in prayer. O Lord our God, we thank you that you are a mighty God. We ask, Lord, that you would speak for your servants. Listen. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Which one of these two pictures is a better image or depiction of life in the kingdom of God? Is the Christian life a playground Or is the Christian life a battleground? Is it Tom Hanks in the movie Big? Or is it Tom Hanks in the movie Saving Private Ryan? I think the answer is a little bit of both. Sometimes the Christian life is a lot like a playground. Here at Pinewoods, we literally have a playground for the kids. We have basketball courts and swing sets. The youth group has a gaga pit in the youth building. They are known to play slip and slide kickball on occasion, which I am not sure is fully covered by our insurance. (laughs) Tonight, we're getting together for our annual fall festival, and there will be a chili cook-off and hay rides and games. It's going to be a lot of fun. I think heaven is going to be a lot of fun. I think God loves fun. I think God invented fun. At the same time, the Christian life is often a lot like a battleground. Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it's difficult. Sometimes it's gritty and grinding and rough. And sometimes we sin. And sometimes we are sinned against. Sometimes We have to fight for joy. How do we do that? How do we fight for joy? 
How did Nehemiah and his friends who were rebuilding the city of Jerusalem fight for joy? How did they overcome doubt and discouragement? How did they endure criticism and cynicism? How did they rebuild the city of God? How do we rebuild the city of God? How do we love broken and hurting people? How do we glorify Jesus who puts broken, hurting people back together again? If you're taking notes this morning, we have a pretty simple outline. First, we'll see three things that threaten to steal our joy. Three things that threaten to steal our joy. And then, secondly, we'll see three things that promise to seal our joy. So three things that promise to steal our joy, followed by three things that seal our joy. Sometimes life is hard. How do we fight? How do we fight for joy? Well, Nehemiah shows us how. Let's take a closer look at Nehemiah chapter 4. We begin with three things that threaten to steal our joy. The first one is foes. Our foes threaten to steal our joy. Verse 1. Now when Sambalat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged. And he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Yes, what they are building, if a fox goes on it, he will break down their stone wall. Now, if you were here two weeks ago, you might remember that we met Tobiah and Sanballat in chapter 2. Sanballat was the governor of a region of Samaria, which was north of the city of Jerusalem. Meanwhile, Tobiah was governor of Ammon, which was east of Jerusalem. In chapter 2, we're told that Sambalat, Tobiah, and another guy named Geshem, the Arab, did not want Nehemiah and his friends to rebuild the city of God. They were angry, and they expressed their anger by mocking Nehemiah and his friends, by ridiculing God's work. They said, what are these feeble Jews doing? You're too weak to rebuild the city of God. You're too weak to change this city. You're too weak to lead your family. You're too weak to stand up for what you believe in. Give up, Nehemiah. Stop building the kingdom of God. Quit. Then they say, will they restore it for themselves? You're incompetent, Nehemiah. You and your friends will never rebuild this city all by yourselves. You don't have the right skills. You don't have the right equipment. You need experts. You need professionals. You need things that you don't have. Will they sacrifice? Oh, you're going back to church now? 
After all the sins you've committed, don't you remember the exile? Don't, remember that, don't you remember that God drove you out of the land because of your sins, and now you're going to rebuild the temple, and now you think God will accept you? You think God will be mercy, merciful to you after all that you've done? Will they finish in a day? You think you're going to rebuild this city in one day? It's taken you years. It's going to take you years to rebuild this city. It's going to take you years to change the world. You'll probably never finish. Why even start something that you won't be able to finish? Will they revive the stones of the heaps of rubbish and, and burn ones at that? Your city is too damaged. Your people are too damaged. Look at what you have to work with. It's a lost cause. I bet a fox could knock down that wall. You're going to spend your whole life trying to rebuild this kingdom of God. You're going to spend your whole life preaching and teaching and making disciples and trying to talk to your neighbors and discipling your kids. And in the end, all your hard work is a house of cards. A little fox is going to jump up on that wall and going to knock it over. Have you ever had thoughts like that? I have. The work is too big and I'm too small. And look what I have to work with. Preaching and teaching and, and prayer. How is that going to make a difference in the world? How is one man reading his Bible, preaching the gospel, and praying with all his might is that really going to change things for the better when the whole world seems to be going in the other way? It's never going to work. Now, who's really speaking here? Now, of course, Sanballat and Tobiah are speaking, but who's really talking? This is Satan talking. Satan is the great accuser, and he wants to accuse the people of God. He wants to discourage the people of God. He wants to taunt us and demoralize us. Why? Because there's nothing more frightening to Satan than the people of God rebuilding the city of God for the glory of God. Satan wants to convince us that we're too weak. Satan wants to convince us that we're too sinful. Satan wants us to convince us that we are too damaged by the sins and abuse that have been committed against us. But here's the thing. It is not true. He's lying, and his lies only work if you believe him. His lies only work if you agree with him. His lies only work if you disagree with what Jesus says about you. Who does Jesus say that you are? Well, according to Jesus, you were a sinner, but now you're a saint. It's not just Mother Teresa of Calcutta. It's you. You are a saint set apart for holiness by the living God. According to Jesus, you were guilty. But now, through Jesus and through his death on the cross, you are innocent. According to Jesus, you were an orphan, a stranger. You had no part in the family of God, but now, through Jesus, 
we are adopted into the family of God, brought near by the blood of Jesus, who has the audacity to call us his brothers and sisters. So often we struggle because we listen to God's enemies. We listen to Sanballat and we listen to Tobiah and we listen to the critics and we listen to the cynics and then we start to believe them. We start to think, well, maybe a, maybe a fox really could knock down this wall. Meanwhile, the wall is nine feet thick. Do you think a fox can knock down a wall that's nine feet thick? That's the wall that they were building. Don't let God's enemies lie to you. Don't let God's foes steal your joy. Now, the second thing that we see is that often our fears steal our joy. So God's foes steal our joy, but also our own fears steal our joy. In verses 7 through 9, we're told that God's enemies moved from taunting to threatening. They surrounded the city of God, they mustered their armies, and if you look at all the nations mentioned there, you'll see that it is an army from the north, an army from the south, an army from the east, and an army from the west. They're completely surrounded. They're cut off from their supply lines. No one can help them, and the people begin to be discouraged because the wall is only half done, and it looks like they're running out of time. Verse 10, But in Judah it was said, The strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to build the wall. Have you ever been paralyzed by fear? I have. I've been paralyzed by fear. Fear is what happens when we overestimate the power of God's enemies and underestimate the power of God. Is God more powerful than Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and all these? Of course he is. Of course. Is God more powerful than presidents and politicians and governors and people in Washington? Of course he is. Is God more powerful than big tech and big pharma and big whatever? Of course he is. God is bigger than all of this. Is God more powerful than hurricanes and natural disasters? Yes. Is God more powerful than the stock market? Of course he is. Is God more powerful than our sins? Yes. Is God more powerful than our guilt? Yes. Is God more powerful than our shame? Yes, he is. This morning, as we worship together, there are Chinese Christians meeting in house churches, knowing that at any moment, Uh, government officials could burst through those doors and imprison everyone there without any trial, without any recourse. Are they paralyzed by fear? Do they stop? Do they give up? 
Or do they continue worshiping together, proclaiming the truth that God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in times of trouble? Fifty-eight years ago, a group of our Christian brothers and sisters gathered together for worship at 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama. That morning, unbeknownst to them as they arrived, God's enemies would launch a full attack against their church. They set a bomb underneath the steps leading into the sanctuary, and four children were killed. A fifth, a little girl, was permanently blinded. Did they shut their doors? No, they did not. Did they let Satan win? No. Were they paralyzed by fear? No. They kept building the kingdom of God. And 58 years later, they are still rebuilding the city of God. If you were to ask the members of that church, what is your mission? Why did God put you here? Here is what they would say. Our mission is to introduce people to Jesus Christ and to encourage the cultivation of a personal relationship with Him. We are therefore committed to evangelizing the sinner, exalting the Savior, and equipping the saints. Does that sound like a pile of rubble to you? To me, that sounds like the city of God. So what are we afraid of? Don't let your fears stop you from fulfilling God's mission. Don't let your fears steal your joy. The third thing we see is that our frenemies can steal our joy. I bet you didn't expect that. Now, sometimes our well-meaning friends can actually be our greatest enemies. What do I mean? Verse 12. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us, Ten times you must return to us. Now, I'm sure they meant well. I think all of our friends uh, mean well. But are they helping are they helping when they come to the people of Jerusalem who are trying to rebuild the walls of the city and they say to them, hey, look, it's getting crazy out here. There's all these nations who are gathered around you and they're uh, taunting you and they're threatening you. Why don't you come with us? Why don't you abandon the work of God? Why don't you leave them on, on their own? Maybe you could compromise with God's enemies. Yeah, sure, they, they're talking a little bit about you know, murder and pillaging and everything else. But aside from that, they seem like reasonable people. So maybe we can uh, become a little bit more like them and then they'll leave us alone. Is, th is that good? This is why it is so important for all of us to have Christian friends. This is why it's so important for us to have Christian friends, men and women of integrity, men and women of honor, men and women of faith, who can encourage us to keep building the kingdom of God, even when it's hard, even when quitting seems like a, a, a very enviable decision to do. If you don't have Christian friends, let me encourage you, make some if that seems daunting to you, we are willing to help you. 
You can come on Sunday morning, certainly. Come to a Sunday school class. Come to a life group. Plug in with a, a mercy ministry. Work side by side with people. I promise you, you will make friends. And you need friends in order to not listen to the voice of your frenemies who are going to tell you what is most expedient instead of what is most faithful. Many years ago, about probably about 20 years ago now, I lived in New York City. And I quickly discovered that I had no Christian friends, almost none. I went to church on Sunday morning, I sat down, I prayed, I sang, but then I left. And I might not encounter another Christian person until the next Sunday. And I realized something is very wrong here. And if I don't get a group of Christian friends around me, well, then I'm never going to become more like Jesus. And so I decided to join one of the ministries of the church. It was called Hope for New York. We stole the name, Hope for Pensacola. And I would serve food at, a, at an AIDS hospice downtown, and I would cook meals for people at the rescue mission, the Salvation Army. It, it was uh, sort of a scary sight, but they were very grateful. I had never cooked before, and so they were very patient with me as I learned to cook there. And eventually I joined a life group, and then after over time, I uh, became a member of the life group, and they asked me to teach the life group, and eventually I went to seminary, and now I'm a Christian minister, and I have a lot of Christian friends. Now, I sort of dialed that up to 11. You may not want to go as far as me, but the point is we need Christian community. We need Christian friends. It is not good for man to be alone. It is not good for women to be alone. We need community. We need the church. Don't let frenemies discourage you. Don't surround yourself with friends who may not really be your friends. Don't let them steal your joy. All right, here's part two. Three things that seal our joy. So we got three things that steal our joy, which is our foes, our fears, and our frenemies. Now, here we go with three things that seal our joy. Number one, prayer. Verse four, hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out for, from your sight. For they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. Now, at first, this does not seem like a very joyful prayer. Am I right? He begins with a lament. He says we are despised. He asks God to judge Sanballat and Tobiah and all the taunters and all the abusers. What does this have to do with joy? Here's the answer. Nehemiah chose prayer over revenge. And when we choose prayer over revenge, when we refuse to avenge ourselves with our words and our actions, we disarm Satan and we discover our joy. Now, if that seems a little bit abstract to you, consider the story of the life of Miroslav Volf. In 1983, so the height of the Cold War era, Miroslav Volf spent eight months being interrogated by an officer in the Yugoslavian army, 
an officer that he calls in his writings only Captain G. For the crime of being a Christian, he was a theology student, and being married to an American woman who they suspected was somehow in league with the CIA, though she was not, they interrogated him day after day after day. For eight months, they threatened him with imprisonment, they threatened him with torture, they threatened him with death. Now, reflecting on that time, he writes this. It's very interesting. He writes, to triumph fully, evil needs two victories and not one. The first victory happens when an evil deed is, per- is perpetrated. The second victory, when evil is returned. After the first victory, evil would die if the second victory did not infuse it with life. In my own situation, I could do nothing about the first victory of evil, but I could prevent the second. Captain G would not mold me into his image. Instead of returning evil for evil, I would heed the Apostle Paul and try to overcome evil with good. After all, I myself had been redeemed by the God who in Christ died for the redemption of the ungodly. And so once again, now in relationship to Captain G, I started walking and stumbling in the footsteps of of the enemy-loving God. Here's the point. Nehemiah asked God for justice. Instead of answering back, instead of attacking the people who attacked him, he refused. He refused to avenge himself. He refused to be molded into the image of Sanballat and Tobiah. He took his hurt to God. And in the process of laying down his burdens at the foot of the cross, he found his joy. God's enemies will try to steal your joy. Prayer will seal your joy. And so when you're hurting, I encourage you to take your hurt to Jesus, the Son of God who loved us when we were his enemies. He will heal your heart And he will strengthen your hands so that you might do the good works that God has prepared you to do. The second thing is planning. Prayer seals our joy, and so does planning. Planning seals our joy. Nehemiah didn't just pray, though he did. He planned. Verse 13. So in the lowest parts of the, the space behind the wall, in open places... I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. At this point in the story, the wall was only half done, and so Nehemiah put soldiers in the most vulnerable sections of the wall. And when they started building the the wall, we talked about it last week, we had all these group of people who were building the wall in sort of a haphazard way. It was organized, but somewhat random in terms of where they built. Now Nehemiah says, I'm bringing the clans together. I'm bringing the people together. Why? Because we will often fight for our friends, but we are more likely to fight for our family. He knows this, and so he puts them together. It's all part of his plan. 
He arms the men, but notice how he arms the men. He arms them with three different types of weapons. Swords, which were used for close-in fighting. Spears, which were used for medium-range fighting. And uh, bows and arrows, uh, which were used for long-range fighting. So he has a strategy for fighting the enemy if the enemy attacks. Later, we're told that the men worked with a sword in one hand and a trowel in the other. They worked and had the sword ready so they could fight at any moment. Now, we talked about this two weeks ago, but it bears repeating. Plan, planning isn't the opposite of praying, and praying isn't the opposite of planning. I know some people are natural planners, and those natural planners sometimes forget to pray, and sometimes people are so uh, excited about praying that they forget to make a plan. We need both, planning and praying, and praying and planning. Now, maybe it's just how I'm wired, that could be, but planning gives me joy. I love making plans. I like systems. I have a system for reading books. Every January, I sit down, I plan my reading for the entire year on an Excel spreadsheet. And I update it as I read books. It gives me such joy. I have a plan for cutting my lawn. His name is Jack. And he cuts the lawn exactly the way I showed him because that is the way that it works the best. I have a plan for Bible reading. I read on my Bible app every day before my first cup of coffee. I have a plan for prayer. I do acts, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. If you've never heard of that, ask me about it later. But I have a plan. I have a system for how I drink my coffee in the morning. I drink my first cup of coffee at 5.15 a.m., my second cup of coffee at 6 a.m., and my third cup of coffee at 6.45. Three cups of coffee, 45-minute intervals, because that's how it works the best. <laughs> Nehemiah had a system. Nehemiah had a plan. Systems are good. Plans are good. How do we know? Because God has a plan. God has a plan for your life. God has a purpose for why you're here. Nothing that happens in your life is an accident. Nothing that ever happened to you in your life is an accident. You are known. You are loved. God chose you to be part of his family. That was not an accident. That happened before you were even born. It happened before Adam and Eve were even created. We're told that he has loved us in Christ from before the foundation of the world. And so I encourage you to make concrete plans for your life, to make concrete plans for your spiritual growth. Now, it might seem like that's a lot of work at the beginning, but I promise you, in the long run, it will increase your joy. Growth in Jesus doesn't happen by accident. Growth in any area of your life does not happen randomly. You need a target. You need a process. You need a plan. Planning, as Nehemiah planned, increases our joy. 
All right, third thing, last thing, preaching. Gospel preaching seals our joy. Verse 14, And I, Nehemiah, looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Verse 20, our God will fight for us. Two sermons, short sermons. In the first sermon, Nehemiah says, God can fight for us. God is great. God is awesome. God is powerful. God is in control. In the second sermon, he says, not only God can God fight for us, God will fight for us. He is gracious. He is good. He is merciful. Our God gives grace the last word. My friends, if you are in Christ, then grace is always God's last word for you. And our God will fight for you. We need to hear that. Sometimes it feels like we're surrounded. Sometimes we hear the mockery and the threats and our hearts are gripped by fear. And we think, this world as it is, is not the same world that I grew up in. And I fear for what will become of this for my children or my grandchildren. Nehemiah says, you don't have what it takes, but God does. Here's what you do have. You have a redeemer. You have an advocate. You have a mighty God who will fight for you. We have Jesus, a Savior who, just like Nehemiah, was mocked and ridiculed and belittled. We have a Savior who went to the cross saying, I will go and do this thing, even though it will cause great pain to myself, even as as sweat poured down his face like drops of blood. Like Nehemiah, he suffered. Unlike Nehemiah, he died. He died on the cross in our place so that we might live. Jesus fought and bled and died for your joy. He rose again to everlasting life to give us an everlasting home in the city of God. When you're discouraged, when you're beaten down, remember that. Preach that gospel to yourself and then come to the church with Christian brothers and sisters who will preach that gospel to you when you can't preach it to yourself. Joy is such a critical part of the Christian life. There are many things that can steal it. We read about three of them here. Our foes, our fears, and even our frenemies. But God gives us great joy in Christ, sealing our joy through prayers and planning and preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, reminding us that Jesus died so that we might live. Let's go to him now in prayer. Oh Lord, our God, we thank you for the joy that we have in Christ. We often live in a discouraging world where people will seek to demoralize us and discourage us. 
We pray, Lord God, that your voice would be the loudest voice we hear. That we would hear now and on that great day, well done, good and faithful servant. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that though we are in ourselves those burnt-over piles of rubble, you take broken people and put them back together again. Do that in us today by the power of your Spirit, the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. We ask this in the precious name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.